0: Our Father, we do ask even now, uh, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your words. Lord, give us grace even now to listen and to speak uh, that you might, even in these moments, act. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have your sheets or your Bibles open in front of you. It will be helpful for us as we walk through this text together. Um, We studied the book of 1 Peter not so long ago in our morning services. And one of the key messages that that, that came through as we studied that text was was that we, as Christians, live as aliens and strangers in a foreign land, so we are like exiles. We, as Christians, live in a land that is not our own. Our citizenship is somewhere else uh, in heaven. We live for the life to come. But that should impact us in this life. We must live this life in a certain way that demonstrates that we do actually belong to heaven and that our citizenship is with another kingdom. And a life of prayer, it has to be said is utterly vital to our survival as aliens and strangers in a land that is not our own. The more I've studied Daniel, the more I think I've come to appreciate that that was the secret of his success. Daniel is a remarkable character. Many of the Bible's central figures are are woefully flawed. So Abraham, the father of many nations... Uh, when you read the pages of Genesis, you do not see a man who is who is perfectly sinless. Uh, imagine him going into the city with his wife Sarah. Now, Sarah, listen, it might get a little bit rough for us here. Go, oh, hello, people of this new city. Let me introduce you to my sister. Yeah, that that was a lie. So he is obviously not above reproach in that regard. Or remember King David esteemed as the man after God's own heart, yet he is guilty of asking the question one day, who's that girl? Or you have Peter, even in the New Testament, who denied the Lord three times. Peter with his foot-shaped mouth. Peter with, even in the, the Galatian error, pulling himself back from those who had obviously been welcomed into the family of faith. But the fascinating thing when you read Daniel is that it's very, very difficult to find anything on this guy. Now, it's not that he's sinless. There's no way that that's the case. But Daniel was a man of integrity. And Daniel was a man who was clearly uh, a man of prayer. Um, A few months ago, when we were in Daniel 6, uh, we saw, that was the episode of The Lion's Den we saw that Daniel, despite the degree that was issued against prayer to anyone apart from the emperor, the king, he prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. He knew where he was. He was awaiting a king from there. That's why he prayed in that way. And Daniel, in this occasion in chapter 9, provides for us a specific prayer. Certainly uttered at a specific stage in history. And yet it serves us well also. Because a prayer was vital to sustaining Daniel in exile. It's certainly vital to sustaining us as aliens and strangers in this land. So the obvious question is, how is your prayer life? I mean two things with that really. Well, one... Are you setting aside some time to pray? We certainly see that exemplified in the Lord Jesus. Before the sun came up, Jesus went out to pray. He went alone to pray. It happened regularly. But secondly, another biblical principle regarding prayer that we often miss, pray continually. Are you praying? I think Daniel's prayer, certainly a prayer of confession, serves us well as we think about what it means to pray and what it means to pray particularly prayers of confession uh, so I'm going to divide this text into two I'm going to try and keep it as simple as I possibly can verses 1 to 19 if you're taking notes number one Daniel prays verses 20 to 27 God answers simple let's look first of all Daniel prays how does he pray Well, the first thing I think we see is that Daniel's prayers are formed with help from the Word of God. Formed from the Word of God. In verse 2, we're told that Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. That's the very same book that we have in our Bibles. And he reads that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, there's no doubt that he's reading Jeremiah chapter 25. Because in that chapter, Jeremiah says, God has sent all his servants to say... Turn now from your evil ways and evil practices, and God will let you stay in the land. So this is before exile. But, says the Lord, you did not listen to me. Therefore, chapter 25 and verse 11 of Jeremiah says, This whole land will become a desolate wasteland, and you will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, as we've seen in verse 1, the times they are are changing. Belshazzar is dead. Darius the Medes the next empire has come in he's the one who's on the throne now and of course Daniel was only a teenager when he was first taken into exile and when he was carted off and now he's in his 80s and he's thinking well this this return is close these 70 years must soon be up so what does he do what does he do with that knowledge does he roll up the scroll and say well God has promised our return I'm looking forward to that day it's going to be soon Well, no, he doesn't just do that. He, as we read in verse 3, turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition. Do you see what he does? He takes the promise of God and turns it into a prayer, really simply. Uh, I bought a bike a couple of months ago. And on the day I ordered it, I promised my little girl that we'd go for a bike ride together. And so when the bike finally arrived... Uh, and I took it home I heard her voice from behind me dad there she was with her helmet on already (laughs) and barely got through the door didn't even take mine off there she was helmet on already remember you promised well there we go I was knackered but I had to go out for another ride well I think this is what Daniel's doing here he is taking this promise and straight away petitioning God says my daughter petitioned me dad you promised can we go on a bike right now And that's what Daniel does. He believes God's word, relates it to his own situation and turns it into a prayer. What a perfect example for us. Are your prayers flat? Is your praying infrequent? Let me ask you, how's your Bible reading? Because if we see in this text, quite simply, that we can take the promise of God, the things that we read in God's word, and use that to pray to God, then we have fuel for the fire of prayer, if you like. The two are inseparably linked. The Word provides the content of our prayers, the vocabulary, and, of course, the Holy Spirit is at work to personalize it to our lives and through, if you like, agreement or amen or conviction, the way we feel as we read it. Oh, that's speaking specifically to us or to me. And so I want to encourage you to take what you read in the Bible, make sure you do that daily, regularly, and to turn it into a prayer. What does that look like for you? Here's one of the things that I found helpful, just to throw out a specific example. I use the Murray McShane readings. Uh, I generally go for the half-strength, two readings a day, but sometimes do four. And often what I do is I I read my Bible with a set of post-it notes. And so as I'm reading through the chapters, what I'm doing is if something convicts me, if there's an amen moment, if there's an agreement there, or if there's a conviction moment, I'll quickly either jot down the verse or I'll I'll write write the verse out in full and I'll stick it on my table. And I'll do that just as I go. I'll not pause long, just quickly write it, stick it down and so on. That eventually, after I have finished my two Bible readings or four Bible readings, in front of me there is just this little gathering of of squares, of post-it notes. And then literally over a matter of five or ten seconds, I'll take that, 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 and I'll move it around and then I'll sequence it and just quite simply say, here's the things I should pray for and here's how I'm going to do it. And do it. Do you do things like that? I offer that because sometimes we just don't quite know exactly what we should do. It's simple. You only need your Bible and a knowledge of God's word and to form that into a prayer. You don't need post-it notes. But if you find things like that helpful, it might be good to try something like that. course Daniel lets God's word form his prayers he's reading God's word even in exile he finds that a necessity as well and then verse 4 tells us as we move on to expect a prayer of confession but Daniel actually starts with praise and that's how we should begin to begin with praise to God how often when we pray do we rush straight to the shopping list especially when we're experiencing hard times. We find it difficult enough to pray when we're suffering or going through a rough time, as it is, but certainly it it brings about a kind of an immediacy to our prayers. But Daniel is experiencing hard times on this occasion, but he doesn't start with what he wants God to do. He starts with who God is. The Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he, in prayer, tells God that he knows him to be both fearful and faithful, both awesome and loving. And throughout this prayer, Daniel highlights God's greatness from lots of different angles. We looked at them a little earlier. In verse 7, he points to his righteousness, his utter purity, his sinlessness, his holiness, the perfection of his judgments, the perfection of his actions. In verse 9, he highlights that the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, that God does not give people what they deserve. In fact, he extends forgiveness to them when they deserve wrath and fury. Now, beginning in this way, obviously just recalibrates our perspective on life, doesn't it? It recalibrates our perspective on everything. It sets us straight. I think that's why Daniel does it. I think that's certainly why we should do it. This has to be our practice. We need to recall who it is we're addressing and let that shape our prayers. Begin with praise to God. Now you know what happens when you begin in that way when you grasp the greatness of god you become more and more aware i think almost immediately of your lowly self Uh, john calvin it was who said man is never sufficiently touched by an awareness of his own lowly state until he has first compared himself with god's majesty don't you find that to be true in your own life i certainly do I can think I'm doing okay, but as soon as I reflect on the greatness and the might of God, his holiness and purity, I can become aware all too easily of the, my, my un, the undeservedness of my approach. And I think this is what we see in verse 7. I think Daniel recognizes this when he says, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. He's surveying God's majesty And at the same time aware of his lowly state. And that's why in prayer we confess our sins to God. And that's exactly what Daniel does in verse 5. Confess your sins to God. Verse 5, Daniel says, we have sinned and done wrong. We know, in other words, you've not broken your covenant with us. We've broken our covenant with you. We're in Babylon because We've been wicked. We've rebelled. We've turned our back on you. We've turned our back on your commands. We've not listened to the prophets, the preachers, the messengers who came again and again and again with message after message after message saying, Listen, hear, repent. If you don't, it's going to be really bad, and this place, Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, will become a desolation. It will be a home for wild beasts, not people. As it ought to be. And it's a straightforward confession that Daniel offers. He says that we are covered with shame. And he says it's not just one or two of us, it's all of us. That's what all the references to, to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, or our fathers, or our kings, our princes, our ancestors. are all covered with shame. We've all refused to listen. All have sinned and fall short. There's no excuses here. There's no evasion of the sinfulness of God's people here, is there? No blame shifting. I don't know how you respond if someone points out a sin or an offense that you've committed against them. I was talking to someone recently who had sinned against me in some way. They're not in this church, but I highlighted the issue and... and straight away got the response with a tightened mouth, I am not what you have just said. It's not an uncommon thing, is it? I do it within my own marriage. We all struggle in some way when, a, when some wrongdoing or sin is highlighted for us. The inner lawyer strikes up immediately and we become defensive. Or we blame shift. Oh, it was her fault. You know, we minimize the sin. well it wasn't a very big thing. I mean, I didn't mean to do that. Or else we just point blank refuse to actually offer what is a normal apology. Instead, we say things like, if I offended you, I'm sorry. By the way, folks, that's not an apology. No, own it. You did. But we'll never get anywhere with God until we see ourselves in verses 5 to 7, you understand? That actually we have all sinned and done wrong. Until we can say with honesty and conviction, yes, that's me. The Bible teaches us that we will never actually find what we really need. Mercy. Forgiveness. Now Daniel knew that on account of God's character, God is pleased to show mercy to those who need it. God has shown that again and again throughout the history of Israel that is to hold back from them what they really deserve and god is pleased to forgive his people to refuse to hold their sin against them and yet he says we've not learned our lesson he says that because he says i, I know that we haven't learned our lesson because we haven't done the three things that in verse, that verse 13 says would show that we are actually learning our lesson that we are actually listening to your word now remember what's going on here At the start of the exile, the reason why they ended up in exile was because they had not listened to God's word. They put their fingers in their ears. They rebelled against him. They refused God. They defied him and served their idols instead. That's why they're there. Now they're coming to the end of this exile. They're about to be sent back because God has promised. In 70 years, that's what's going to happen. I'll bring you back. Jeremiah 25, even Jeremiah 29 highlights that. For I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you not to harm you yeah I'm going to bring you back then you're going to call upon me and Daniel I think at this point is looking upon his people and just thinking do you know what I'm not sure that we're how we're going to fare when we go back because we are sinful people we are wicked we are rebellious as we go back who's to say we're not going to make the same mistakes again and so he pleads with God. that he would do something in the hearts of the people who feel like they're doing all right with this exilic lifestyle. They feel like they're kind of fitted into Babylonian culture actually quite well. They can cope. Maybe they've got married. Maybe they've got a business. You know, the prospect of being uprooted now and going back to Jerusalem might be a scary thing for them to do. They might not want to. In any case, it's it's likely that a large number of the folks that initially came have died... And this is a new generation that's come up. But Daniel says, we have not sought the favor of the Lord. We have not turned from our sins and we have not given attention to your truth. Do any of those things describe the way you're living just now? Are you seeking the favor of the Lord? Are you trusting in his grace, in other words, for your very life? and breath are you have you turned from your sins in the first instance and are you daily turning from your sin are you putting to death the sinful nature and clothing yourself in righteousness are you not setting your heart on things below but setting your heart on things above where Christ is seated these are the things that we are called to do And these are the things that distinguish us from the world and help us maintain an effective witness as God's people in a strange land. What distinguishes us from the world is not the fact that we are less wicked, because we're not, but that by the grace of God we've learned to see our wickedness for what it is and confess it. Turn over to the back of your sheet, to where the application section is, the make it stick section is. You see that diagram there? I think this helps to explain for us this cross chart of what Daniel has effectively done in his prayer. He's gained for himself, along that top line there, a growing awareness of God's holiness. In his prayer, he's meditated on, reflected on the greatness of God's. And what he's gone on to do, and without any evasion, confessed the sins of his sins and the sins of, of the people. And in that sense, has a growing awareness of his sinfulness. Do you see what it does? For us, when we have that, a growing understanding of the necessity of the cross. A growing appreciation for the value of Christ's blood that cleanses. A growing awareness of our daily need for the gospel. That's exactly what we need. So don't just come before God and worship him and adore him. Confess your sins to him. Then you're ready to make your request to him. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. We're really glad you're here. Um, Many people, before they hear God's word, read or preached or shared across a coffee table or something, um, think that God views sin in the sense of there are certain big sins. These are the big things that you need to avoid, but God doesn't really care about all these other things. Um, That's not true. God cares about all the little things as well, but it gets a little bit deeper than that, you see. Our concern, uh, God's concern for us, is that we are sinful by our, in our very nature. We can't help sinning. We need to be broken free from our, what the Bible calls our slavery to sin because we can't stop doing it. And there is only one way that that is possible, and that is through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who on the cross took our sins upon himself and made away with them, So that we might have forgiveness and mercy and grace extended to us. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more at the end of the sermon. Uh, But think about that. It's vitally important to everything you hear tonight. So Daniel adores God. He confesses his sins to God. And then in verses 16 to 19 makes his request known to God. Daniel's great hope is to see this end of exile God's people return home, their city and temple rebuilt. And look at verse 16. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger. So here are the specific things he's asking for. Turn away your anger, because that's what's behind your righteous anger. Your just judgment is behind this exile. Turn it away. Turn your wrath from Jerusalem. Bring an end to it. Look with favor on us. And verse 19 summarizes the desperate plea, doesn't it? Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear. Lord, act and do not delay. Now, you can do it. He's praying a prayer of faith. He believes that God does listen, does forgive, does hear and can act. And that's why he prays. And how do we know what we ought to pray for? Well, we're helped by understanding what motivates, ultimately, what motivates Daniel in this prayer. We should be motivated by the glory of God in whatever it is we ask of God. In verses 16 to 19, Daniel's requests are made with the primary aim that God will be glorified. Your city, verse 16, your holy hill, your people are objects of scorn. That, In other words, that makes you, Lord, the object of scorn. Verse 17, for your sake, rebuild the temple, the city that bears your name therefore your reputation is attached to it and affected by its destruction verse 19 again for your sake O my god do not delay because your city and your people bear your name you see what is the driving concern of Daniel here God's reputation God is to be glorified above all things it is what we are to live for it's what he created all things to do, but that has been tarnished clearly by the fall. Like some virus in a computer corrupting key files, it corrupts us and prevents us from living in that way. We seek to glorify ourselves rather than him. But Daniel says, No, 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 no. You've got to recalibrate that as well and pray. Lord, be glorified in our lives, in our church. Be glorified through our unity. Be glorified through the salvation of my friend. Be glorified by helping me beat this anger. Lord, glorify your name by helping me not to gossip because it's tearing things apart. Fit anything into there. Make your request known to God and pray that he would be glorified in and through it. It's a wonderful example, isn't it? Like I said at the start, this prayer is a specific prayer in a specific historical situation and yet it serves us well as a model for true prayer. We need to pray like this if we're going to live effectively for the Lord as aliens and strangers in this land as we seek to grow in the likeness of Christ together as a church and proclaim Christ to those who don't know him in our city and beyond. Well, what happens when we pray to God what happens when we pray to God? Verses 20 to 27 tell us that God answers. That is as simple as it gets. God answers out of love. Do you see this in verses 20 to 23? I love the fact that what Daniel explains to us is that while he was still speaking, and he's speaking round about at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now don't skip by details like that. That's an interesting point. The evening sacrifice? Well, there was no temple in Jerusalem. There hadn't been any sacrifices for probably around 66 years. But what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that Daniel has still maintained some of the principles of worship from Jerusalem and the temple, even while he's in exile. Although there hadn't been any sacrifices, he was praying at those times. And while he was still praying, an angel arrived in swift flight. And he tells Daniel that he is highly esteemed. In fact, in the original language, it says deeply loved. Do you know that's how God receives us? When we who through faith have received Christ, come before the Father in prayer in the name of Jesus, that he considers us in that way. Do you think God frowns over you? Do you think he's tutting like some, I don't know, some unpleasant teacher? Do you think he frowns over us or looks away over, over us with indifference? No, he considers us, he deeply loves us and moves towards us and answers our prayers. And verses 20 to 23 tell us that as soon as Daniel began to pray. That's how quickly God answered his prayer. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Yeah, he's answering him immediately. He says a word went out, which basically means I've come to tell you something. I've, I've come to give you another vision. And I've come to tell you it so that you can consider it and understand it. Now, it's not easy to understand. It's not impossible, but it's not easy. And here's how I think it serves us. I think it serves us like a mountain. Have you ever been hiking or climbing a hill you know, and you're looking forward to getting to the summit because, well, one, you're knackered and two, you know you've got a ham sandwich and a cup of tea to have when you make it. Well, have you ever done this thing where you kind of, you think, yes, I'm nearly there and you get to the top of what you think was the summit? Yeah, only to find that there is a higher summit and you've still got a fair bit to go. Well, I think this is what what we're shown here. I think God answers his prayer with this little summit by saying, yeah, I'm going to answer your prayer. You're going to go back and this is what it's going to be like. But what he does is he says, so for the 70 years, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back. and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to restore the nation. We've got Ezra and Nehemiah, other books of the Bible that serve to show us how that happens. But yet he's saying there's the 70 years, that's going to happen historically, but then there's the 77s is what he goes on to talk about. And you're like, what? (laughs) What does that mean? Well, he's pointing forward. He says, I'm going to show you what's going to happen now, but I'm going to tell you about something great. Are you ready for this? Understand this, Daniel. And the key to understanding this vision in verses 24 to 27, I think, is in knowing that the Hebrew says 77s, which means basically... Seventy weeks. Okay, seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, and so on. Seventy weeks. So Daniel's prayed, God glorify your name by forgiving sin and restoring the temple in the city, end this period of exile. But this vision, if understood, will give that greater joy even to the one returning from exile. Because they know they're there because of their sin. But God is not only going to give them mercy and forgive them so that they can return to the land. God is going to do something. He's not going to end just their exile. He's going to make an end to sin. (laughs) What? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I'm going to answer your prayers way beyond what you give or ask or imagine. Way beyond. It has to be said that there may be more writing on these verses than any other passage in the Bible. Just Verses 24 to 27. And I read one commentator this week who said, reading all of that literature, that body of literature is like wading through a dismal swamp. (laughs) So I'll leave that to you (laughs) if you want to go and read that for yourself. But let me try and simplify it and boil it down as best I can. The most commonly held interpretation is that what you have in verse 24, the 77s is like the 70 weeks. This is the broad time frame. And then verses 25 and to, uh, to 27 kind of split up that broad 70 weeks into sections, okay? Three sections. Um, so the most commonly held interpretation is that each week is seven years. So 77s is around about 490. Now de- and depending on your starting point and which calendar you use, honestly, it gets that complex. You can arrive at basically the date of return for the exiles forward to the time of Jesus' death and the subsequent destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Let me show you the overview. Uh, let me show you the breakdown. Verse 26, 7 a time when hope returns. The word going out refers to the return from exile. Jerusalem being rebuilt, but will still experience trouble. They will have people who will raid them and ransack them, and because of their own sin, they will face judgment. Uh, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but will experience trouble. And the first reference, I think, there to an anointed one is Ezra, the first high priest who's reinstated. He who is of the Aaronic line, the line of the initial high priest, Aaron. Then uh, uh, you have the 62 sevens um, in verse 26, which is really a time when life goes on. It's a longer period and it seems that an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing towards the end of that period now I think that immediately makes us think of Jesus the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 points us in that direction I think Jesus who was cut off from the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people says Isaiah and in the end the place is just destitute And that's followed by a ruler who will send people to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And most would say that that relates to Titus in AD 70 destroying uh, Jerusalem. And then there's a a kind of the continuation of things throughout that time where war will continue to the end, uh, which will basically be an ever-present reality. And then there is a final time, 1-7, a time, if you like, when storm clouds start to gather During which sacrifice and offering come to an end. No more worship at the temple. Abomination that causes desolation comes. Uh, A man is judged. Man of lawlessness we expect. Antichrist will meet his end. It's hard to understand but not impossible. But I think that's the breakdown of it, to try and teach us that there is not only the return from exile, but the return, this, this coming of one who will be cut off from life. So I'm not just going to put an end to your exile, I'm going to put an end to your sin and here's how I'm going to do it. And here's what it's going to be like when that kingdom is established through this one that I sent. If you remember the, the vision from chapter two, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the stone formed not out of human hands crushing these empires smashing them to pieces it's the one true king the Lord Jesus Christ himself but let me finish with verse 24 I think this big picture is one of the key things that we need to take away from this passage it is the simple thing the the understandable thing that over the course of this allotted time however you think it's laid out Over the course of these 70 weeks, the prescribed time that God has ordained for all of these things, there are six things that are going to happen. Six things that should fill your heart with joy and gladness and help you to look forward. Three negatives, three positives. The three negatives, God is going to finish transgression. Transgression is when you overstep the mark. There is a time coming when there will be no more overstepping the mark with God. He will put an end to sin. It it says exactly what it says there. Simply there. As I've said, not just ending the exile, putting an end to sin. There'll be no more. And He will atone for wickedness. He'll make a payment. There will be reconciliation between God and man because wickedness will be taken away. Three negatives there. What about the three positives? As well as ending sin, he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Everlasting righteousness. A holiness that lasts forever. He will seal up the vision and prophecy I think he's talking about Jesus Christ here who is God's last word to us because in him all the promises of God find their yes and their amen. There is no longer any need for a most holy place for that temple because Jesus is, as he says in John chapter 2, the new and better temple. Destroy this temple, he says, and I will rebuild it again in three days. These are the very things that Daniel prayed for. These are the things that we should long for. Daniel is gutted over over his sin. Daniel is gutted over the sin of his people. He pleads for mercy and forgiveness. And God answers his prayer and says, I forgive you. But let me point you forward to what I'm going to do. It will blow your mind. But I'm going to put an end to sin. And I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. And this is what the Lord God has promised for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who, when he died on the cross, died for our sin. He became sin for us. The one who promised that we who have hope in him will have life everlasting in his name. And this is the testimony of what John says in 1 John 4. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And that life, that everlasting righteousness, that life is in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him we must put our faith and trust. Have you? If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the way that God has made it possible for you to know an end of your sin and everlasting righteousness. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're encouraged to do what Israel did not do. Acknowledge your wickedness, turn from your sin, don't rebel against God anymore, but come to Him, plead with Him for His mercy and His forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, and He will grant it. And we who are Christians, who live as aliens and strangers in this world, must pray to God and read His word and pray these promises. Until that very day when we see it come. Won't be a great day when sin is gone? Let's bow our heads together and let's pray together.